But uh, so uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege we have of gathering together as your people here, several different congregations. And we pray that you would um, draw us close to you through your word. Help me, Lord, to speak what is right and true and helpful. And I pray that we would all leave here um, like trees planted by streams of water, that we would be drawing our nourishment and our edification from a, a close connection with your word that we might know you, the true and living God, and that we might glory in Christ our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, so uh, I've already seen some friends here from years past and made some, met some new people. And uh, we're going to spend some time together. And, and I agree with what Steve said earlier. I love this to be interactive, that um, it's okay. it sounds like they prefer that we wait until the break to, or until the lunchtime to ask questions. But feel free to, if you don't have the ability to email your question in, just jot it down and feel free to speak it out when we're at the lunch lunchtime. Just a little bit more about me. I served, uh, not only serve as a professor at Southern Seminary, but I served as an elder slash pastor at a church in Louisville for about 20 years and stepped down about a year and a half ago just to be able to focus more on some of my teaching ministry. It was a great, I'm still at the church. We thought, we, my wife and I were talking, we, let's, let's do a good transition where someone doesn't step down and then they're mad and leave. Or, healthy, you know, hey, I'm, I'm happy to be here, but I, God's calling me to some other work. Also, um, my, I have three daughters, a little bit more personally about me. I have three daughters who, two are in college and one is still at home. Um, my wife is just finishing her doctor of musical arts degree at the University of Kentucky, so we've been a busy schooling house uh, in recent years. My middle daughter is at a sovereign grace church in Knoxville at Cornerstone. It's just really prospering there and we thank the Lord for that ministry. Um, so we're going to talk about interpreting the Bible. And my goal for this is that when you leave here today, someone could say, what were the main points of the, the talk? And you wouldn't have to dig out some notes and you wouldn't scratch your head and be like, well, they had cauliflower pizza, you know, I think. But that, that you could just jot through, just looking at the person, not looking okay, these are the seven main things that he mentioned. And you say, well, that's not the way I normally function, but we're, we're going to use a mnemonic method, a memory device, uh, to help you remember the things here. Uh, the goal is just so that you can meditate on this teaching. And insofar as it faithfully represents the scripture, then, then I want you to meditate on it. You, you, can, you can be a Berean Christian and, and judge if that's the case. Now, I know talking with Dan Turner right beforehand. I know he's a pastor many years. Some, many, most of the things here, for some of you, uh, I mean, we'll just, we'll, it's not new, but it's just sort of revisiting the fundamentals in some ways. So um, I'll give the analogy of, uh, I have a daughter who, my 16-year-old at home, loves to run. She's probably running right now. She's a running machine. And sometimes I overhear her coach, you know, talking about doing this and that. And I think, oh yeah, that reminds me of when I was in high school and I need, I should, yes, I should stretch out like that after I run so I don't have an injury. Like it's, sometimes it's good to revisit the fundamentals and we're gonna, we're gonna do that today. Now the memory device we're gonna use is a memory palace. Who has heard of a memory palace? Anybody? Okay, maybe from watching Sherlock Holmes, you thought, you thought oh, that's just, that's all made up. There must be some kind of, you know, uh, things savants use or something, but actually there's a, you know, an ancient history of using memory palaces. It goes back to ancient Greece. And the way it works is that you need to pick a visual, uh, pick a space, a physical space that you're familiar with. So it can be your home, unless you moved in there last week. So let's choose a space you're really familiar with. Or this church, if you go to this church. Or another church or a workplace that you're in. Somewhere that has at least five or six um, separate spaces, so rooms that you can, so in your mind, you can walk from one room to the other, and what we're going to do is we're creating a visual filing cabinet, so then we can go back, and we can walk through those rooms, and it will remind us of the different points that we're doing in the talk, 
And the, the way that this sort of method works is the crazier and stranger thing that you put in that space, the more unexpected thing you put in that space, the easier it is to remember, okay? Uh, I'll mention, if you have some interest in this mnemonic method, there's a, a New York Times best-selling book by Joshua Four entitled Moonwalking with Einstein. And he, he was reporting on the competitive memory circuit where you know, you've seen this in the TV or where, where people can memorize a deck of cards in random order in like 90 seconds. And you think, oh, that's, you know, that's just like Rain Man or something. No one can, people, normal people can't do that. And they told him, oh yeah, this is just a technique. We use a visual filing system. We have images associated with different you know, numbers and decks and we just create a quick story and we wrote, that's how we remember all this. And, and he, he got into it and he, he did it and he ended up winning the, international, the national memory competition. So it's a, it can be a very effective thing to do. So challenge, do you have, you have your visual space? Think about it, home, office, church, whatever it is, somewhere you're familiar with. And we're gonna, we're gonna walk through that now. Okay, we're gonna walk through it and we're gonna put in seven key images to remind us what's essential in interpreting the Bible. And so for me, I'm gonna pick my house and I walk in the foyer of the home, just the first room, so wherever it is for you, and so what I'm going to put in this place is praying hands. But not just, you say, well, how are you going to put them there? Well, I'm going to put something unexpected. I'm going to put a disco ball. So you have to imagine it. You're creating this in your mind. Put a disco ball in the room, projecting little praying hands circling on the room there. You know, not something probably you have there. Maybe, maybe you put someone unexpected there. You put grandma there. And you look down, and on grandma's arm is a gigantic prayer tattoo. That would be a really strong arm for a grandma to have, so it could be somebody else. But you, something unexpected. It's hard for me to get a selfie like that at that angle. You know? <laughs> no, that's not my arm. Uh, but the idea is, and this is not just like the Sunday school answer, we're gonna see that actually the scripture guides us that prayer is the essential first step in approaching God's word, and we're gonna see why. But that we, that this image Prayer, see it in your mind. See it. The prayer hands on the wall with the prayer disco ball, the prayer tattoo unexpectedly. Maybe, maybe if you're an 80s kid like me, maybe you got MC Hammer praying in the back, going to the background. You got to pray just to make it today, right? The Gen X people. Maybe you have a little extra sound there. And and uh, Martin Luther, we're gonna is gonna lead us to the scripture we're gonna talk about. Martin Luther, famous reformer of the church in the 1500s, in the, in the preface to the Wittenberg edition of his writings, he said, I, I wanna teach you the method of approaching the scripture. And the method comes from Psalm 119. He says, Psalm 119, the longest Psalm in the Bible, 176 verses, is all about the word of God. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous, uh, uh, part of the confessing church, the faithful church resisting the Nazis. He had a secret seminary and he required his students to, to memorize Psalm 119 uh, before they began their studies. We'd have a smaller smaller student class at Southern Seminary if we did that. And, and Luther summarized Psalm 119 with these three Latin words, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. We're gonna come back to some of these, but he said, look at Psalm 119. It breaks down into these three themes. Prayer, oratio, meditation, meditatio, and trial or difficulty. Right? Trial or difficulty. We'll come back to that. How is how how is the psalm talk about all those things? But we're right now we're gonna talk just about oratio, about prayer. And um, when, I, when I've taught hermeneutics in the past, one of the assignments I had, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation. So when, I, when I've taught that in the past at the seminary, one of the assignments I had was I had a printout of Psalm 119 and had students label each of the verses. Where it has this deal with prayer, this deal with meditation, deal with difficulties in being maligned, sickness, difficulties that we go through in life where the word of God becomes uh, what was abstractly true becomes experientially uh, the only thing that can satisfy us in this life. And uh, prayer is, a, is undeniably a huge theme in Psalm 119. So again, this is, if you think about the Psalms, the Psalms is like a father teaching a child how to speak. 
So I, I met uh, Charlie this morning, Rob, Rob, the IT guy's little daughter. Uh, she kicked my leg. Uh, I didn't know she was down there, and I thought something's moving. And then there's a little child sitting there kicking my leg. It didn't hurt at all, but it just surprised me. And, uh, but uh, as she gets older, right, her parents are going to be like, say mama, say daddy, say grandma. You know, like, and, and, and the Psalms are like God the Father saying, this is how you speak to me when you're sad, right? And we have Psalms of lament. This is how you rejoice. Uh, when you're happy, this is how you direct. And, and then we have Psalms like Psalm 119. This is how you approach my word, right? And so we are like children speaking these words back to our father as we learn how to approach his word. And so I just want to look at, look at a sampling. This is just a sampling of some of the verses that show us, you know, I didn't just choose prayer because we should pray and we know that, but because God in his word teaching us to approach him says, this is how you approach my word. You approach my word with prayer. So let's, uh, let's look. So here we have Psalm 119.5, a prayer. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. And, and we'll see the, the, the petitions are sometimes are for, that our heart would be inclined, that our eyes would be open. There's all different kinds of dimensions for understanding, for desire, for obedience, right? All, all of these different dimensions of approaching the Word of God. And there's several different ways to use this. One, one way to use this is <clears throat> just very practically. In the morning, before you have your devotions, or you have your devotions in the evening, whenever you have your devotions, before you just jump into the text, that reading Matthew or whatever, that you, you pause and you open the Bible to Psalm 119. Maybe you have some of, the, some of your favorite verses on prayer highlighted, and you pray these. Right? They may just, you, can just, you can just literally say the words as they're written, or you can <clears throat> adjust them. You can make them more personal. You, know, you can say them, add a personal element, you know, stew in the verse for a while and pray it back to God. So there's either just pray it word for word or make it more personal to what you're going through at that time. So say, God, you know, uh, let, let the verse sift you let it let it be um let it examine you under the work of the holy spirit say god as i'm coming to you this morning i see my ways are not steadfast in obeying your decrees and i pray that as i study your word you'll give me that desire to be steadfast and that 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 you'll be able you'll say to me lord well done my good and faithful servant that i've been faithful in obeying your decrees so you have one psalm 119 10. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. So again, we, we may read that to begin with, and then we sit in the verse, and we say, God, I'm not, I don't feel that I'm seeking you with all my heart right now. The last day I've been seeking my comfort. I've been seeking the applause of others. I've been seeking other things. But God, I want, I want as I come to your word now to be recalibrated, I want to seek you. I'm going to seek you with all my heart. And, and God, let me not stray from the way of your commands. Psalm 119, 12 says, Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Again, we could just read that and sit in it and say, God, I, even as I come to your word, I realize I'm many times looking for information, but I want to, I want to have you redirect my heart to you in praise. God, you are worthy of praise. Open my eyes to see how glorious you are as I study this text and let me praise you. You say, you may say, God, I'm reading this, you know, this Bible study book and this is a great teacher, but you're my ultimate teacher. Teach me, oh God. May your Holy Spirit teach me your word as I study it. Guard me from error. Guard me from self-deception. I'm prone to want to justify myself. I'm prone to not see my own sin. Teach me. Open my eyes. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 20. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful verse. Probably many of you have heard that many times. Maybe you haven't memorized 
That's one of those ones you might want to highlight. You say, before I begin, we have some pastors here too, before I begin preparing my sermon, before I begin preparing my Sunday school lesson, before I begin my devotions, I'm going to sit, sit in this petition. God, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. We might, again, sit in that for a while, let that direct our prayers and say, God, I realize that many times my eyes are closed to the wonderful things in your word. My eyes are open to other things. And I, and I want you to open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your law. Just sort of a footnote here, just so we prevent misunderstanding, is we're, what, what we don't want to do, you know, let's say you're in a Bible study and you're talking about the text and someone says, there's some disagreement about the meaning of the text. Someone says, well, I prayed 30 minutes before. How long did you? So I'm right. No, that's not, not what we're doing, right? It's not, it's not praying does not guarantee. It's not like some secret information is you know, imparted to you that is not available to other people. It's open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word, right? So that, that what we're seeing, we're seeing is there objectively in the Word. We're able to, to I, I can imagine something like we're saying, God, put on the spiritual polarized sunglasses for me. Right? If you go out on the lake and there's, you know, you think there's distortion and all this, and we have in our lives all this distortion, our own affections, distractions, and sin, and, and, and we say, God, Remove that. Let, let me see what's really there in your word and be nourished by it to, to weigh accurately differing interpretations based on, on what's really there in the text. Um, I've given the analogy in class sometimes. It's like if you imagine, uh, I recently was visiting the Hispanic coordinator for the Southern Seminary who lives in the Dominican Republic, which I have to say, we should move the whole campus to the Dominican Republic, in my opinion, after visiting. It's very, very nice down there. But the, uh, so if you're out on the Caribbean water and you're in a boat, let's say that you're, you're diving for treasure, diving for uh, shipwrecks for treasure, you have two boats, right? You're both looking at exactly the same thing. The water that's deep, there's light reflecting on the bottom of the ocean. But, but one of those boats, they look at it and they say, I see that and that, I think that's gold from, from a ship that, and, and I'm going to dive down and get it. The other, the other boat looks at it and says, no, that's just, that's just the water reflecting on the sand, right? One of those is true. And, and we're saying that, that we want to see rightly what's there and then not just know more, but then be moved to do something, right? We see the treasure and then we, we take action. We're moved to do something. Verse 18, again, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Verse 19, I'm a stranger on earth. Right? Isn't, isn't it beautiful how the Psalms give voice to sometimes the way we feel that we don't express, the, sort of how we don't fit, the loneliness we might feel even. I'm a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Again, we want to sit in that and say, God, I, I don't know that. I know that my soul is not consumed long for your, for your laws at all times. And my soul has been consumed over the last day with, with these things. But God, I want my soul to be consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Will you, will you work that? Will you work that in me? Um, I think this is the last one we'll look at. This is, again, just a sampling. Right? The, the, the psalm is... 176 verses. We've only made it through, you know, a fifth of them or something like that. So there's, there's lots more to look at. Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find the light. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. So, um, again, I, I'm challenging you to make this, if, you're not, if you haven't done this, if you're not doing this, tomorrow, before you read the scriptures, try this. Open Psalm 119, even if it's just a few verses, and, and then pray them back to God. But, but as you pray them, let them 
let them sift your soul and respond honestly to what you find, right? Because uh, God is, is he, wants, he wants us to be um, honest and forthright about where we are with him. And I so have a, a couple more brief points on prayer before we go on to the next room. And, and the thing I want to say a little bit more broadly about prayer is that, that God is not in the, the business of making religious hypocrites. We can be grateful. So when we pray to him, we're like, I want to understand. I'm preparing my Sunday school lesson. God, give me understanding. And then God says, okay, how about the way you've spoken with your roommate the last day? <laughs> how about the way you spoke with your wife and your children? What about that thing at work that you, has been bothering you? conscience. What about that? And, and, and God doesn't want us to push that aside. But I want to be a great Bible teacher, God. To help. He, he, want, he's, he, he said, I want you to be a mature disciple. I want you to grow in your understanding. And so this is a verse that illustrates that. 1 Peter 3, 7. Not really, we're not talking ex exactly about interpretation here, but we're talking about the step of prayer and interpretation. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The point being that, again, God is in the business of making disciples, not religious hypocrites. And if we come to him in prayer and there's issues of disobedience and rebellion and sin that we're not facing up to, his, his answer to us is, I want you to deal with this. Uh, before I give you further insight, before I open your eyes to see wonderful, wonderful things in my word, that's what I, maybe his opening of our eyes, that first step is saying, you need to walk faithfully with me. I'm calling you to specific action to repent of or to maybe go speak with someone to make something right um, that's not right right now. I'll give the analogy to this if I'm, if I'm driving along and when my kids were younger, three daughters, sometimes they pick at each other and fuss at each other, you know, and uh, imagine they're doing this, and then we going by, I'm like, hey, you're driving, stop, <laughs> trying to control things while you're driving, parents know what this is like, and um, we go by Dairy Queen, and they're like, ice cream, I'm not going to be like, yeah, ice cream, you know, I'm going to be like, ah. no, we, we, need to, we need to deal with what you just called your sister, and you pulled her hair, and we need to deal with that first. Right? And then we can talk about ice cream, but not right now, because we have some things going on that, because I'm your father, I want you to, um, uh, because I love you and I don't, I don't want to grow, you to grow up to be spoiled brats, uh, I need to deal with this. One final verse we'll look at on prayer, uh, before we go to the next uh, room, is at the Jesus teaching on prayer, the mountaintop teaching, Matthew 6, where he says, here's the model prayer that I give you that you should pray. That includes uh, confession of sin, asking for forgiveness, uh, protection from the uh, spiritual enemy that we face, prayer petition for God's glory, his kingdom, all these things. But then at the very end of it, Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And and it's it's not... Don't misunderstand it. Forgiving others doesn't earn God's forgiveness. Forgiving other people does not earn God's forgiveness. But when, if we legitimately are in the realm of his forgiveness, we cannot remain unforgiving people. Imagine the, the, the other side of this, someone, someone giving their testimony at church, and they're like, I came to know God's forgiveness, and I, I used to be a bitter, resentful, unforgiving person. I still am. But I'm grateful God forgave me. Yes, I'm ready to be baptized today. You'd be like, oh, hold on. <laughs> There's a disconnect there uh, that if you come to know the grace and forgiveness of God, then you must extend. You can, you can do nothing other than extend. If that's not happening, then God wants to work that consistency into your life. All this has been circling back around over and over again to the issue of prayer. So we remember our visual filing system. We come into Whatever it is, the structure that we have, we say, I want you to see again. You see the disco ball projecting the hands around. You see the big prayer tattoo. I did see East Dayton Tattoo Parlor on the way drive in today. I thought, it could surprise my wife, come home with a tattoo. It really would surprise her. 
my eldest daughter got a tattoo in college, which is not uncommon now, right? She's sheepish about it, but it's very tasteful. Uh, but here we have, uh, here we have a, a prayer tattoo, and it reminds us, before I, I don't, I don't want to rush in to studying the Word of God. I want to pray. And not just, God bless my prayer time, but I want to be in the, in the Psalms. Like, I, wanna, I want the Father, the Heavenly Father, teach me to pray about approaching the Bible. Teach me what are the things I should be asking. How should I frame my petitions? Okay? So then we go to the next room. And these are, all of these things, it's not like, okay, I prayed and now I don't pray anymore. Like, these, these are things that are operative in reading and interpreting the Bible. So you pray as you begin, but then it doesn't mean, well, I already prayed, so I don't pray. You know, prayer continues to be a part of the study of Scripture throughout. Uh, but the same way, we come to the second room, and for me, it's the den in my house or the living room. And I want you to see in your, whatever this room is for you, I want you to see all around the walls. I want you to put in your mind, you can put all around the walls, the stark wallpaper of people doing different sports, like the Olymp- little Olympic symbols. So you have people doing soccer and judo and horseback riding and volleyball and archery and basketball and gymnastics right you see all these different sports right and it's a reminder we're using the analogy of sports having different rules the bible is not just a book it is a book but it's actually a library it's like a tiny library of 66 different books that have different genres, different rules that the authors clearly expected the readers to, to understand uh, as they read those books. We don't read the Psalms the same way we read the Gospels. We don't read the Proverbs the same way we read prophecy. We don't read biblical narrative um, you know, the same way that we read apocalyptic literature. So there's, there's these different genres within, within. And it's just like if you come to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, there's a big lawn in the middle, and you'll often, when the weather's nice, you'll often have the international students will be playing a pickup soccer game. Uh, the Brazilians and the uh, Ghanaians, and they're out there playing soccer. And if, if I went out there, because I'm the professor, and international students are very deferential usually to, to professors, I went, hey guys, I want to play. They'd be like, sure, you know, here's a jersey. And I get out there, and let's say I pick up the soccer ball, and I start running with it. <laughs> They'd be like, hey, hey, hey. Uh, no, <laughs> that's that you can't do that. There's certain rules associated with this game, and you, unless you're the goalie, or unless you're the you know guarding the goal, you can't pick it up with your hands, right? And it's similar to different genres of different kinds of literature within the Bible. Okay, so let's talk about that in a little more detail. Genre is taking you back to English class in high school here. Genre means kind of literature, the kind of literature that we have, Proverbs, poetry, prophecy, narrative, things like that. And before we talk about the Bible, let's talk a little bit about understanding genre in our own time and culture, just to get a, just to get a feel for that before we talk about the Bible. So imagine that you are in a, the local library, you stop by the local public library, and as you walk by a room, you don't even see anything, you just hear someone reading out loud, and you hear them say, once upon a time, right, with a, unconsciously, you, you're, you think, well, there's, they're telling a fairy tale, right, it's probably got fantastical creatures like dragons, and maybe there's knights, probably there's some, some difficulty or challenge to be overcome, um, it's going to have a happy ending. Maybe it will teach a moral story. Right? We, we get all of that from just one little line because we're familiar. We're very familiar with that genre. Let's say I, I, when I drive home today, I check the mailbox as I pull into the driveway, and I find an envelope that says Mr. Plumber, and they misspell my name. It's probably some sort of dot matrix printer from the 1970s or something. Mr. Plumber, you have just won $10 million. I don't, I don't jump up and down. I don't, scream. I don't run up to the door. 
my wife's name's Chandy. Chandy, we won ten million. I realize this is an advertisement that's wanting me to buy magazines or something like that, and I understand it's the, it's that that sort of genre. Or if I walk in the house and my 16-year-old daughter says, "Oh, Dad, this is a horrible weekend. I have a ton of homework." I don't take her backpack and set it on the scale and say, that is only 13.2 pounds. You have lied again. You have lied again. A ton is 2,000 pounds. Now I want you to go unload the dishwasher and think about what you've done. I understand that's hyperbolic language. It's language of exaggeration for the purpose of emotional effect. We intuitively understand that, even if we don't know what to label it. We, we intuitively understand that sometimes with Jesus' teaching when he says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There have been some monastic communities in the history of the church where people did actually mutilate themselves, but that's clearly not what Jesus wanted people to do. He said, go, he's saying go to the extreme. The language is hyperbolic. Go to the extreme to avoid sin is the purpose of that language, right? And, and if, you, if you, Jesus also said, right, if, if someone gives to you, ask of you, give to them. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, right? So imagine you have a small child and you, you go home and they say, um, hey, dad, I've always wanted to drink the Drano under the sink. You know, they're five years old. You say, well, that's, that's, that's uh, bad for you. And, and they say, the Bible says, Jesus said, do not, you know, give to the one. He said, give to the one who asks of you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You say, well, you got me there. Okay, um, so I'm going to get the Drano. I'm going to let you drink it. But we're going to drive to the hospital parking lot first. And so that way I can rush you in. I can pump your stomach as soon as you do it. But I have to figure out some way. You can see, I mean, it's absurd, right? It's absurd. But you can see how misunderstanding, and actually, in my early years of teaching at the seminary, uh, we had lived in a really small house, so I didn't have an office. So I just worked at the seminary and would go home. And so the secretaries found out that I, I was always there, uh, which was a bit dangerous. But the, whenever they got random calls at the seminary, they just transfer them to me. Like ran, which people randomly call the seminary to ask spiritual questions. I wish I kept a, a list of them. It would, have been, it would be an interesting book. But uh, one time this guy, I was talking to him, and I was trying to explain this. I don't remember what his problem was. With some, it was some hyperbolic teaching. I was trying to explain. I was like, yeah, you know, like in Matthew 23, where Jesus says, don't call anyone father because you have one father in heaven. I said, it's not, right, it's not wrong to say with your mouth, father, father, and have children call you father or daddy, right? The point is we don't want spiritual like hierarchies, which is one reason, especially when I'm ministering in local church, I'm like, just call me Rob. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. I don't want to have my flowing robes and have my best seat and be called rabbi. Those are scary things to, to happen. And I, I said to him, yeah, yeah, you understand. Like, it's okay. Your kids call you father. And he honestly said, he said, well, I've always wanted to obey the scripture, so I never let my children call me father. I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. I didn't say this, but it's kind of crazy is what I thought. And, uh, I mean, that's obviously super unhealthy. And, and, like, those kids probably are confused. I mean, it's kind of confusing. You think you're growing up in a home where you think to be, my dad's really spiritually committed, and so he mean, that means I can't call him father. Yeah, so that's... That's strange, right? That's, that's misunderstanding genre. If we misunderstand genre, it can result in a lot of confusion, right? So number one, it can be just, just ways that misunderstanding genre can result in confusion. One, it can be an underhanded way of denying the truthfulness of a text. So if you hear someone on NPR and they're like, well, obviously the Gospels are myth and blah, blah, blah. That's a genre decision. They're saying, I'm labeling the Gospels as mythology, which means they're not presenting historical or factual information, right? They're just made-up stories. C.S. Lewis has a famous article about this where people were calling the Gospels myths in his day, and he says, for all those people who labeled the Gospel as myths, he said, I have a question for them. How many myths have they actually read? <laughs> because I, I'm an expert in literature, and I've read countless pieces of mythological literature, 
And the Gospels are not presented as mythological. They're presented as historical recounting from, from the features of the text. The author is clearly presenting them as historical, not as myth. Another, another, another example of um, the danger of misusing genre, this is one that we could be guilty of here, is excusing ourselves from the demands of Scripture once we understand this, right? This, can, this hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, can be used in a wrong way to, to we could be like Pharisees. We could become really skilled at, at excusing ourselves from Scripture. So, for example, and we say, oh, yeah, that's true. If your right, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He doesn't mean to really cut it off. So then we don't, we don't, we don't really hear what Jesus is saying there. With the, it's like, flee from sin. You know, do, go to the extreme to avoid sin. Or uh, in Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who asks from you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. I don't give a kid Drano. I don't give a suicidal person a gun. But then when we're inconvenienced by helping someone who asks us for help, we, fail, we, we excuse it rather than hearing the radical call to serve and help. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, said this. This, is, this, this hits right at me because I'm, I'm in this field because I'm a, technically right. I'm a New Testament scholar here. It says, Christian scholarship is the human race's prodigious invention, big invention, to defend itself against the New Testament, to ensure that one can continue to be a Christian without letting the New Testament. guys like I won't let my kids call me father or there there's other examples of this you can uh, you can see for example there there are certain communities that demand hey if you're a Christian you should speak in tongues right and they uh, they'll say look here in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit fell on people everyone spoke in tongues if you're not speaking in tongues then you don't have the spirit you're you say well there are other passages in Acts where people don't speak in tongues right and so it doesn't seem like that's a uh, indispensable mark of true Christians. It seems it's one of the gifts that's presented. So it's taking, 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 uh, and, and the, the issue there, the book of Acts is narrative, right? And, and narrative, it's not that everything we read in narrative is to be copied, right? We, we have to pay more careful attention than that. Like, is the author telling us this to instruct us in some way? Does he want us to imitate this? Is he saying this is not something we should do? Like, it takes more, takes more care with the text than just repeating it. So let's look at an example because over half the Bible is narrative and narrative can be quite challenging to interpret. Let's look at an example of, of this. Um, and in Luke 2, 4 through 7, you, don't, you can look in your Bible if you want, but you don't have to. Uh, we're, we're reading in Luke 2, 4 through 7. This is um, part of the Christmas story as Luke gives it. And I'll just read for us. So verse 4, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Well, when my, why, when my wife and I uh, were... We're thinking that children were going to be soon on the horizon. And this is more than 20 years ago because our oldest daughter turns 21 <laughs> next week. So it's a long time ago. So we, we actually had cassette tapes. Some of you know what these are, right? Some of you have used these. We had cassette tapes where we were listening to biblical teaching about how to parent by some well-known teachers. And uh, they were, they were, if you've, I don't know if this is still a, a disagreement. It probably is, but there's extremes when it comes to parenting. On one side is sort of attachment parenting, right, where you carry the kid with you all the time. You strap them on and wear them. And, and at its extreme, you even have the family bed where kids are sleeping in the bed until they're teenagers with their parents, right? And then the other, other extreme is like, hey, from the first part, kids needs to know who's in charge, and they got their space and you got your space. 
and uh, so people disagree. But the guy was more on this side, right? And it makes sense to me. I mean, just on a practical level, you don't want your kids in your, you don't, you don't want to roll over on your kids in your bed and hurt them. It's not healthy for a marriage, I think, probably to have kids sleeping in the bed all the time. But so he was on that side. But he wasn't just content to, to say, here's some reasons for it. He said, the Bible teaches you should do this because look here in Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm serious. So he's using, but then you have to step back, right? This is the interpretive question. You have to say, did Luke give me that detail so that I would know to place my child in a manger too? Or some other receptacle that resembles a manger, right? Or something. Is that, is that why? That's why interpreting narrative is kind of tricky, right? Because you have to read the whole book to get a sense. And if you read the whole book of Luke, one of the themes is Jesus comes for the outcast and the poor and the lowly. And you see, and that, this ties in. Luke points out when Jesus, the king of the universe is born, he isn't born in a castle. He's born in a cow stable. And he isn't placed on a throne. He's placed in a feeding trough, right? You say that, yeah, that seems to be more, Lucas seems to be telling me that more to emphasize Jesus coming for the lowly than, than telling me what to do with my children. And in fact, if we look in Luke 11, Jesus is telling the parable, one you, you know of where the, the, the friend goes to the other friend to borrow bread because someone's, someone's come to visit. And in Luke eleven five 5 through 7, we, we read the end of the parable here. He said to them, which of you, well, I guess this, we'll start at the beginning. Which of, which of, he said to them, which of you has a friend? Um, go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. Aha! So you say, well, here, this verse seems to be the, the family bed. Well, but no. Jesus, the, the, Jesus is telling a parable that's filled with local imagery and color of how people normally lived. And we know their houses were very small. People often slept on the flat roof of the house together as a family, piled up like meerkats together in their little houses. And so... It, again, it's not, is, did Jesus tell us this story? So, oh, that's how, the family bed. Now we know, you know, this detail tells us what, or again, it's just a picture. It's just a, that's, that's an incidental detail from the local culture that's not intended to teach us how to sleep together as a family or something like that, right? We could, we could talk about many different examples of uh, misusing genre. I'll, I'll, I'll mention another one. I, I want to remind you where we are. We're in the second room, right? The first room, prayer, we pray. Second room, do you see all the stark images of judo, you know, whatever it is, soccer, basketball, gymnastics? So we say, oh, yeah, narrative is, is like a sport and poetry is like a sport. There's different expectations that the author, within the text himself, you read the whole text, not just pieces of it, makes clear expectations that we would have. For example, in Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 10.4 says, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. So imagine you're driving along here in Dayton with your child, or, and, and they say, hey, look, there's the homeless guy out there. And you say, yep, he's lazy. Why? Well, the Bible says lazy hands make a man poor. There you go. You see it, son? You say, no, that's, that's, that's not how... That's not how Proverbs work, right? Because there's another proverb that says uh, a, a field may produce abundant crops, but injustice sweeps it away. So you're like, well, this proverb seems to say someone could be poor because of injustice, and this proverb seems to say someone could be poor, poor because they're lazy. You're like, yeah. <laughs> the proverbs speak to different situations, and it takes wisdom to apply them to the right situation. Maybe the homeless guy is poor because he's lazy. Or maybe there are other reasons, right? And it's, it's like taking a big stick and just hitting people randomly if you don't have wisdom to know how to apply them, right? It could be injustice that has swept away his wealth. Or it could be a number of different things, right? So the Proverbs 
it's a good reminder. One, the Proverbs speak to specific situations, and it takes wisdom to know when and how they apply. There are more, there are more most of them. Now, there are some Proverbs that deal with the nature of God that are clearly not situational, but the ones that deal with human behavior are more situational, right? Um, the wise way to live, okay? Jonah 3, 4, right? The book of Jonah, if you look there, Jonah gets to Nineveh after um, some <laughs> side trips that were difficult. He gets there, and he's finally obeying God, and he just goes through the city and says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. All right, and then we get to the end of the book. Nineveh's not overthrown. So, well, you know, if I look at Deuteronomy, it says if so, the prophet says something's going to happen, doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. Is Jonah a false prophet? What's, no. Again, we need to understand the genre of prophecy. And you say, well, how do I understand it? Well, you read a lot of prophetic books, and the, sometimes the, the expectations of the genre come to the surface. For example, in Jeremiah 18, God says, if I ever announce the judgment on a city and a judgment on a nation, they repent, then I will relent. Or if I announce prosperity and the nation turns against me, judgment will come. We realize that the, in prophecy, the announcement of imminent destruction is an invitation to repentance. And the, the, the response that is pleasing to God is for people to actually repent, right? So that, that Jonah is not a false prophet. And the people of Nineveh, they understood this themselves, even though they're a pagan nation, right? Because what happened when he announced this? They didn't, they didn't flee for the hills and say, well, you know, this city's going to be destroyed. We better get out of here. But they put on sackcloth and ashes and they fasted. It says the king even ordered that the animals be covered in sackcloth and that, they, uh, that, they, they, that the animal, the like cattle and sheep, had to participate. It's interesting if you read it. The cat, involuntarily, they're probably thinking, it's not us, you know. But involuntarily, the, uh, even the livestock in ancient Nineveh uh, participated in the uh, repentance. So Matthew 25, 1. So here we have a, we have a parable. It says, that at that time, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So someone says, I'm trying to learn about the kingdom of God here, and it looks like Jesus is teaching me about the kingdom, so it looks like only virgins are in the kingdom. Right? So that's only, no, of course not, right? It's just a story. It's just a story. And you say, well, the kingdom, must, 50% of people are saved and 50% are damned, right? Because we have five wise and five foolish and five that are shut out and five that get. You say, that's not how parables work. Right. Parables work, they're, they're, they're fictitious stories that usually have one correspondence, they usually tell us something about God and the right way to respond to God, to God in the wrong way. There's, there's usually one, two, or three elements, and, and some, sometimes they have just one element, sometimes two, sometimes three, and they're a call to decision. They're, the, the specific details that these are virgins, that they're five of this, five, you know, those are just incidental details to make the story interesting. Jesus was an interesting storyteller. He's he captivating to people. And so don't misuse the genre, right? Don't misuse the genre by, um, by drawing things out of it that were never intended. Now, um, we're at a good place, I think, to pause for a break. But before we do... Steve, are you here? Do you mind if I see if people want to ask something right now, too? Is that okay? Okay. Does, and there's no bad question. There's no bad question. There might be a question that we say, let's defer that to lunch. <laughs> if someone's like, what is your favorite gospel? I'm like, that's a good question, but it doesn't relate exactly to what we're doing right now. So does anyone have anything they want to raise based on what we talked about? Yes, sir. And, yeah. What are some of the major genre that you tend to see in, yeah. in kind of the larger church or things that you tend to see? Yes, yeah. so something. the question, question, I think it probably will record on the video without me repeating it, but just to be clear, what are some of the, <clears throat> the major misuses of genre? Um, I think probably, 
like in popular preaching or teaching or Sunday school literature, we're going we're gonna to continue to look at some examples of this, but is not really paying attention to what the biblical author is trying to teach, but instead already having some ideas about what you want to say and bouncing off a text that serves your purpose, right? So not really um, the example of the of the putting the baby in the crib or in the manger, right? That he already knew what he wanted to say, found a text that supported that seemingly. And, and because over, I mean, God in his wisdom made over half the Bible narrative. Narrative is beautiful. People, when you read, why do people watch Netflix all the time? <laughs> why do people watch Amazon Prime all the time? Because they love story. We love stories. We're wired for stories. And especially, I remember when my children were very young and I was trying to do devotional, like family devotionals, and I was trying to go through Romans and had like puppets and stuff, and it was just like an utter failure. And, and I thought, we need to, especially when the kids are young, we need, to do, uh, we need to do stories from the Bible, right? Because they could latch on to that better than discussion of justification, right? That was not working. And, uh, and you think about throughout the history of the world, how many, how, what percentage of people died as children or as young? You know, God in his wisdom gave so much of his word. It's accessible to everyone, uh, regardless of their age. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably it. I mean, one time I had a class, and this guy, you know, I've been talking about hermeneutics and everything, and he, he came to me and goes, oh, I'm so excited about my Easter sermon. He said, this is my title. He had this zinger title. And he's like, I and I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. He's like, I still, I still got to find the text I'm going to use. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> ah! <laughs> you know, another time, just, just uh, there was, a, yeah, there was a, uh, a guy on the front row, and he was, uh, he's, uh, he was a very expressive guy. And uh, in hermeneutics, he was just, one time, he's like, oh, doc, doc. He's like, you're ruining my preaching. And I took that as a great compliment because he was basically saying, I can't just go in there anymore and just go with what feels good. I have to actually think really hard and study, like, what is the biblical author seeking to teach? So, good question. Any other question, thought on this? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's a great, great summary. Don't take things out of context. Context not only being, you know, the sentence above and the sentence below, but even the kind of book that it's written in, the kind of literature. So the book of Revelation, uh, people will sometimes, it's a, it's a very image-filled book, and people will sometimes read parts of it very literalistically, uh, which seems somewhat inconsistent with the way they read other parts of it. So, yeah. Any, anything else before? We're going to take a break in just a second. Anybody else have a final question, comment? There's no... We'd love to hear anything you have to say. Yep. Hello, sir. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> there's frequently arguments about what sort of genre part of the Bible should be classified as. Mm. How can we intelligently um, argue yeah. ab about that? Yes. From scripture and do you have something in particular in mind or do you want it more generally I, I think probably the thing that comes to mind most readily is uh, early Genesis oh, okay yeah yeah so um, so people disagree about sometimes about genre um, and how do we navigate that charitably and faithfully yeah so I think it you know again not to be trite here, but pray like we saw in the scriptures. Pray not only about for proper understanding, but also for the ability to communicate with other people. And, and we can, you know, I do think there's a place, obviously, there's a, there's, there's a place where, where Christians say, no, I, I could never agree with that and be a Christian. For example, someone saying the gospels are just myths and these are made up stories. You say, that's not, yeah, that's not an option for a faithful Christian to, to believe that the depictions of Jesus are mythological. And then, there, then 
in my opinion, people can disagree in here, <laughs> but in my opinion, there can be some level of disagreement about things. Genesis, I think, is presented as narrative, but are there poetic features in it? In other words, um, Christians, I do think true Christians can disagree, you know, is, is, this, uh, is, this, is the earth 6,000 years old or is it older? Is, are these, are these um, perhaps poetically longer periods of time uh, that are depicted? Uh, you know, I, I think that Christians can argue about that. They can disagree about that. And we don't say, well, you're a heretic because you don't believe that earth is 6,000 years old, you know, something like that. So, but, but it all should come back. If some, let's say someone is arguing that. They say, well, I believe that the, that the earth was probably created in, um, you know, we shouldn't understand that as, as a literal 24-hour day, but as, as something else. The question comes back to what is, say, well, let's look at the text. Like, you, you tell me what detail in the text convinces you of that, not just, well, I think it, I think that. You say, well, and it, it always needs to come back to the text. And they say, well, because of, you know, here, this repetition, evening, morning, first day, evening, morning, first day, evening. That sounds poetic. You say, okay. Well, then, then this person says, well, let's talk about the word day here and how that's used. Is that, could, can that have that? And, and so that it all is coming back to, the words, the assertions, the details in the text. Is that, is that a fair th answer? I'm trying, I'm trying to answer it without uh, creating a controversy. <laughs> I, I'm trying to answer generally enough that people can agree without, without us becoming sidetracked about a particular issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, on a, actually a particular point, but others not only the reference there, but other references to that particular teaching. Yes, yes, for yes, example, exactly. For example, yes. six days is mentioned in other places yes. besides early Genesis, and many other cases where yes. there's this co collaboration. Of yes, a yes, so very good point that not only the particular scripture that you're in, but other references to the same thing. So someone might say, and this is not uncommon for some for like critical biblical scholarship, well, the book of Jonah is, uh, is fiction you know, something like that. And uh, you say, well, it seems strange then that Jesus refers to Jonah and events in the book, seeming, it, it would appear on face value as he's referring to actual historical events, right? Not, so yeah, so the way that other authors pick up and use the text can also be very instructive. That's a very good point. Any, any other final question, comment before we go on? I'll try to make this short, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, when you were talking about your daughter's backpack wing, like she had a ton a of ton. homework, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you called that hyperbolic, and you said yeah, yeah. it's supposed to trigger an emotional. I'm yeah. just trying to clarify yeah. what you said before it I ask my question. Yeah, hyperbole is used to express strong emotion, usually, of some kind, or, or, or emphasis. So okay. think about it. In other words, if she, if she just said... Um, yeah, I have a lot of homework, or I have a ton of homework. You see, the, t the, yes. it's, it, it, the hyperbole, or I'll never finish this homework. I'll be up till 4 a.m., and she'll go to bed at 11. You know, but that, that's, that's to express frustration, emotion. When Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, it's obvious shocking language. That was my question. The, yeah, yeah. I just wanted an example yeah. Like, not yeah. that I'm questioning you by any means. No, no, no. You're, <laughs> just, you're welcome to. I just wanted to. an example in Scripture because I could so see that. I just yeah. wanted to see it. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Uh, but if you, if someone, I mean, if you go to the bank and the teller says, you know, you say, they say, do you, you make a deposit. Do you want me to write your, your balance on your thing? And, and they write $7 million and give it to you. And you're like, what? And they'd be like, uh, actually, it's more like 700. That's just a little hyperbole there. You're like, <laughs> it says, it says that there are places where hyperbole, there's places where hyperbole is appropriate and understood. And then there's other places where it would be, it would not, it would be lying, right? It would be, that's, that's lying and hyperbole are not the same thing. So, yeah. Yep, good question. I think it's a good time for one, one final thing, and then we'll take a break. Yeah, great. Sorry. Um, 
Do you think it's our responsibility to prove to someone that that's a hyperbole? Because uh, um, yeah. I feel like someone could easily be like, no, that's literal. Yes. Well, I guess it would depend on if they were, if you felt the person was confused and going to misapply the text, then, then there would be a reason to, to do that. And one of the ways you could do that, you can glance in the, you don't have to buy a copy, but you can glance at the book that, that Steve mentioned. There's a chapter on, on how do I know that something is exaggerated or hyperbolic teaching. And one of the, one of the ways you know is it appears to contradict other explicit teaching on face value. You know, like uh, where Jesus, Jesus clearly teaches, the Bible clearly teaches we're to love and honor our parents. But then he says, you know, if you don't hate your mother and father, uh, you can't be my disciple. You're like, well, does that mean I'm supposed to like literally hate them? You're like, mm, well, that would contradict you're to love and honor them. You know, like, so how is, so that's one way is if there's a surface level contradiction with other teaching, then you realize, hey, this is, this can't mean the, what it means on the surface. There must be, must be some other sense to it. Um, hey, I feel like we need a bathroom break. So take about a 15 minute break. And, uh, and we'll come back in about 15 minutes. Thanks for your good questions and your attention.